here tonight with us. We're going to have a good we're going to have a good service, I think, as uh, everyone else leaves for small groups. If you're not in small groups, again, I'd like to encourage you to do that when we get into our next semester. I believe there'll actually be a massive benefit to you and that you also will be a benefit to someone else's faith. And so be involved in small groups. You don't have to do it every time, obviously, because you'd miss us every once in a while. But it's fine. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you that your word, it leads us and it guides us. That, Father, you've given us the instruction we need for life because you love us. God, you didn't want us to go through life blindly, so you teach us and you instruct us. Your word, it's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And your word teaches us that you love us, God. That you love us and that you will consistently pursue us. And so, Father, I pray that even tonight as we talk about what we're going to talk about, Father, that we would see the love of God pour through your scriptures into our lives and that, Father, we would be left with only the option to respond to your love. And I thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, well, tonight we're going to talk about sin, everybody's favorite subject, and I I'm so excited to talk about this. I'm assuming that because you're all mature, responsible adults, this conversation will go much better than it does with the teenagers. You know, we're just like, why can't we do that stuff? It's so fun. You're like, it's going to kill you one day, you know. Um, But what I want to do tonight is I kind of want to just, I want to lay some groundwork for, for what I believe Scripture reveals to us about sin the nature of sin, what sin does to us, and why sin is something we actually needed rescued from. Because we could have conversations about what specific sins are. We could go there, and there's absolutely a place and a time for that. Because we don't want to be ignorant. I don't want to be living in sin ignorantly, doing things that would lead me to death. And so God's word graciously reveals to us, these are not the things of God, you know, so you need to avoid these things. But I want to start at the even more base level of what is sin in its nature and what is the nature of the gospel? What is, what is the truth of the gospel that we get? And so here's where we're going to start. We're going to start very simply. What is sin? What is it? Maybe you've never heard of sin. Maybe you're joining us on live stream and you've never heard the word sin before. I want to let you know what it is. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we're going to do some Bible hopping tonight. So uh, have your fingers ready to scroll or to flip pages, but in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we read this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. It is lawlessness. So what is, what is sin? Sin is any time that we break the law. Right? That's pretty simple. It's anytime we break the law, that is sin. Which should lead us to the next question of what law are we talking about? Are we talking about the speed limit? Right? Are we talking about like I can't steal from you know my brother or whatever? Like what law are we talking about? Well, it's important for us to understand that the law that's being referred to here is God's law. It is it is the law that, that we see in the Old Testament scriptures, right? Starting with the Ten Commandments, and there's like six hundred and sixteen laws, I think, given all throughout the Old Testament. That's a lot. That's a lot. And so Jesus, because he's amazing, he simplifies it for us. And he explains to us what God really wants from us. And we find this in Matthew 22. So if you turn there, it's going to be really familiar. You guys are going to know this scripture. You're not going to be shocked by it at all. But I want to read it. 
In Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, going through verse 40, we read this. It says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now let me give you a little context here. What's happening is the religious leaders of Jesus' day don't like Jesus. And so they're trying to go to Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to do something or to say something that would be in error according to the Old Testament scriptures so that they could, you know, get rid of him. That's really what's happening. And so the Pharisees had come to Jesus and they tested him and Jesus stumps them. And so, or sorry, the Sadducees had. And so then the Pharisees are like, we got this. And so they go up and they're going to try to stump Jesus. And so one of them, an expert in the law, this guy, his whole thing is about knowing and understanding God's law as given to them in the Old Testament scriptures. So this is important for us to know this. This guy already knows the answer to the question that he's going to ask Jesus, right? So he's trying to trick him. So he says, hey, teacher, uh, what, what, is, what is the greatest commandment? You know, there's a bunch of them. Which one's the greatest? And Jesus' response tells us a lot. He says in verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues on. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says something really amazing. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what is sin? Sin is breaking God's law. And what is God's law? Jesus sums it up for us in the simplest way possible. He says God's law is to love him and to love your neighbor. All of the law, every, all 600-something laws in the Old Testament, all of them boil down to that. Love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you don't want to sin, it's simple. Just love God and love your neighbor and just let that be everything that you do, right? That's what Jesus teaches us. What is sin? Sin is breaking God's law. What is the law? Ultimately, it is loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, the next big question we must ask ourselves about sin is, why is it a big deal? Why is it actually a big deal if I sin? If I don't love God and if I don't love my neighbor, why does that matter? Well, because Romans 6.23, again, another very common verse for us, says this, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. A wage is something that's given to you for work that you've done, right? Are we, we all in agreement with this? Wages, you earn a wage, right? And so what Paul writes to the Roman church is this, when you go out and work sin, what you're earning for yourself is death. That's what you're working towards. So any time in my life that I go out and I don't operate in love towards God or love towards my neighbor, what I'm working for is death. That is the reward or that is the compensation that I'm earning at that moment. You, you track me. That's why sin's a big deal. Because it's not what God wants for us. 
God doesn't want you to experience death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we could have life, right? He, his desire is for life. And if we're going to take sin seriously, then it's going to come from us knowing what it's earning us. It's earning me death. And the death that scripture would go on to explain to us, that death is a separation from God for all of eternity. Sin pays a very heavy wage, right? But Paul doesn't stop there with the bad news. He moves on to the good news. And he says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me show you the nature of sin. The nature of sin is death. And the nature of the gospel is, is that it's a gift. Let me show, I want, I want to show you this. This is the beauty of what God is doing in us. You have to earn death. You have to intentionally work for it. There's no part of you that gets to earn life. It can only be received. It is a gift. What does that mean for me? That means that I have to intentionally go about earning death. I have, to work, I have to intentionally work that direction. But God is so good that he doesn't require me to earn life. He offers it as a gift, right? Do you see the goodness of God in the cruelty of sin? Sin will destroy you. Sin is what brings pain and sorrow and suffering. And as you pursue sin, you get its ultimate reward. Its ultimate payment into your life is death. Sin is cruel and gets crueler, but God is good and gets better, right? Because I'm not earning anything from him. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm telling you what, sin is terrible, but man, God is so good. I want you to know that as we talk about sin and as we look at sin and we should absolutely take sin seriously, we should also take very seriously who God is and the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's not something you will ever earn. You can only receive it, right? Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you something that I think is really, really cool. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 because I want to show you how Paul is making this beautiful argument here, okay? Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, I'm reading from the NIV. If your translation looks a little different, that's why. But here's what he says. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, okay? So the ways in which we lived where we weren't loving God and we weren't loving our neighbor, we are dead in those sins, right? He says, in which you used to live. That's the way you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Look at verse 3. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of Wrath. Okay, pause right there. I want to stop here for a second because sometimes there's an argument that I hear where it's like, how can God be so loving and send people to hell? I just want you to know that if we stopped and think about the nature of sin for just a moment, we would learn to be really grateful that God does not turn a blind eye to it. Let me put it to you this way. 
If you have children and somebody intentionally and willfully hurts your children, you're okay with wrath, right? You're like, let them get what's coming to them, right? If somebody hurt my spouse, I know many of you, you know, I've had conversations with them. somebody ever tried to touch my kids or my wife, I'd kill them. Okay, why are we going to get all worried about God saying, hey, you know what? When you're a sinner, you deserve wrath. If we stop to think about it for just a minute, I don't think any of us would want to live in a world where sin doesn't have a consequence. Right? The goodness of God is revealed in the fact that he won't turn a blind eye to sin. Why? Because all sin, at its core, at its base level, is either an act of us not loving God or an act of us not loving our neighbor. And guess who your neighbor is? An image bearer of God. Who God crazy loves so much that he went to a cross to show them how much he loves them. And to make a way for them to have new life in him. So every time I sin, I am hurting one of God's children. And if I could be full of wrath towards someone who would willfully and intentionally hurt my own children. It's very easy for me to understand how Paul can say that we deserve wrath when we live in sin. Because I'm hurting someone that God loves. You see that? So we can, we can get so caught up on it sometimes that, that we fail to just stop and go, what would it look like if I lived in a world where God just let sin happen? Where God wouldn't hold people accountable for the wrongs that they've done? I don't think any of us want a world like that. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, yeah, we deserved wrath. That's what we'd earned, right? Because the wages of sin is death. When I live in that, then I'm earning that wage for myself, right? But, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And look at this amazing language. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay, so up to this point, here's what Paul has been showing us, that every single one of us, no matter who we were or where we came from, we all started in this place of sin, where we're separated from God and we're in death. That's why sin's such a big deal, because it separates us from God. And when we're in this place of not belonging, even though we were loved, we did not belong with him, right? He says, but that's not who you are anymore. Because you've been set free. Your faith in Jesus has given you this gift of new life that it's in Christ. And you've been raised up with Jesus now into this newness of life. And then Paul finishes somewhere really amazing. In verse 10, you know it, but I'm going to say, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What did Paul just do? Let me show you. He started chapter 2 saying, we were all sinners. We all deserved wrath. But then we get to verse 10 and Paul reveals to us, actually, 
What Jesus is doing is just bringing you back to where you always were supposed to be. Right? He said, we all, we all were by nature deserving of wrath. We were all sinners. We were all following in the ways of the disobedient. We were all trapped in this life of sin, and we were held hostage to sin's power and to death. And, and, but Jesus, he changes all of that. And he gives us this gift. We don't have to earn it. He gives us this gift. And Paul's saying all this. And then he gets to that last verse, verse 10. And he says, actually, I want to remind you that that wasn't where you started. You actually didn't start as a sinner. Humanity started with God. He says what Jesus is actually doing is bringing you right back to where you were always supposed to be. That's why when we come to Jesus and we put our faith in Jesus, something inside of us jumps alive and we realize this is where I was always meant to be because it's the way we were created. I love that. I love that Paul takes us through this journey of like, man, you were sinners and you deserved every bit of wrath that was coming your way, but because of how good God is, oh yeah, by the way, you were actually created for that from the start. You're just coming back to where you were always supposed to be, right? So the nature of sin is death, but the nature of the gospel is that it is a gift. It's not something we earn. Paul says you can't earn it because then you could boast. I want to tell you what Paul's trying to get into our minds is this, that you're saved by grace and you are always saved by grace. Why? Because you can't earn what God gives. You can't earn it. It's always by grace. So what does that do for us? It means boasting is out the window. I can never look at anyone else and judge their life because everything that I have, God gave to me by grace. And the salvation that is mine, I didn't earn it. So I'm able to walk in humility with my brothers and sisters. We're going somewhere with this, okay? Because we're going to keep moving here in this journey of sin thing. But we got to start from a place of humility. And every one of us, if we remember what we were saved from, we're able to walk in grace with those who are still needing saved from it. Because it's the kindness of God. Like Nobody wants to be around someone who feels like they earned it themselves when it comes to God because we know it's not true. You know? It's, it's one of those deals where like, I can't see my flaws, but everyone around me can. You know what I mean? So if I walk around going, you know what? I'm just such a good Christian. Everybody that spends any time with me is like, well, you know, I mean, we could talk about it a little bit. And maybe we'll not feel so good about yourself after a few minutes of talking to me. The point is that God is good and we cannot earn it and we must remember that because it keeps us humble and it sets us up to live the life of freedom that Jesus has purchased for us. If at any point in my walk I feel like I earn it, then I'm not relying on Christ. You see what I'm saying? You see where I'm going? Okay. Let's go to Colossians 1, 13. I told you we were going to do some Bible hopping. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul writing to the church in Colossae, he says this, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, this is a really easy concept for us to grab, but I want to make this point. Sin is terrible, and Jesus rescued us from it. Why would I intentionally go back into a prison cell 
that Jesus had to die to set me free from, right? This is kind of the concept. Because when it comes to sin, there are two ways that we can approach sin, okay? We can either approach sin in the works mentality way of, oh, I can't do this because, you know, this is just wrong or whatever. Or I can approach it from this way. I have a new life now, and that's not part of the new life. Because I know that that leads to death, I don't want to go back there, right? So I want to pursue, maybe I should say it like this. Jesus doesn't just save you from something. He gives you something to run after. Maybe that's a better way to explain it. Because sometimes we treat Christianity like Jesus saved me from this thing, and now I have to do everything I can to let that not come back into my life. But I don't see that in Scripture. What I see in Scripture is Jesus saved me from it so that I could run full force into everything that he has for me. That's what he wants for us, to embrace new life, not to live in fear of falling back into the old one. You tracking with me? And I think that makes all the difference in the world. I really think it makes a difference for teenagers. By the way, if you have teenagers, a lot of our conversations around teenagers can sometimes fall into the, you just don't need to do that. You just don't need to do that. That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. When we could be saying, you know what you should be doing is go pursue these things that really are going to bring joy and satisfaction and build the life of God in you. Let's go see how good it is to actually live for Jesus. But oftentimes, and I'm not saying this specifically about this, I'm just saying like in youth culture around the church, a lot of it feels geared towards like, don't go fall into this. And I would rather be like, bro, there's something so much better you could be going after. Like, look at how good Jesus is. Why would you want that if you could have this? You see what I'm saying? So to me, my approach to sin makes all the difference in the world. If I feel like I have to try to avoid falling into something rather than, man, I've got this thing that is going to produce life that I can chase, right? Then, and I feel like I get too consumed with trying not to do the wrong thing instead of being consumed with pursuing the right thing, right? You see, okay. So he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. Why would we ever go back to something that we needed rescued from? Now, let's go to Galatians chapter 5. I'm almost finished because I think that, you know, we're all pretty smart people. We got this figured out. Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 13, and we're going to read a big chunk here. Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, and he's talking to them about what it means to live in the newness of the life that Jesus offers. And, and here's what he says. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And we can understand the flesh to mean sinful nature, right? Which, again, what is sin? Sin is me not loving God and not loving my neighbor, okay? He says, rather serve one another humbly in love. So here's something to pursue, Right? Don't, don't indulge your flesh. That's the thing you want to avoid. But here's the thing to pursue. Serve one another humbly in love. Right? He says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. He's very cleverly saying what Jesus said. Right? Jesus said the whole law is summed up. Love God, love your neighbor. He says, just, just keep that law. He says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here we see it again. He's not just telling them to avoid something. He's telling them to pursue something, right? Walk by the Spirit, and a product of walking by the Spirit is you won't go this way to begin with, 
He says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Then we get to verse 19. Again, this is a very you know, well-known passage of scripture, but he says the acts of the flesh or the sin nature, we could say, are obvious. They're obvious. It's not hard to identify what actions we do that aren't loving towards people, right? That's another way for me to say that, that the things that we do that aren't in love towards other people are obvious. You know when someone's not acting in love towards you, you know what I'm saying? So he goes through and he says sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He says, I warn you as I did before, here's a big whoa moment, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, let's stop. If you go look through that list of sins that he just rattled off, and you really just think about them, you're going to discover that every one of those things, if you do it, you are in some way or another not loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or you are not loving your neighbor. Every one of them is going to boil down to that. You're either not loving God with all that you are, you're not loving your neighbor. And then he goes on to say, I warn you, I'm letting you know that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I feel this is very important for us to understand. In John, in 1 John, which we're going to go to 1 John, I really encourage you to go look at, just read 1 John in its entirety. He deals a lot with sin, and for the sake of keeping a message short, I'm not going to do it because you just need to read his whole entire letter. It's, it's all in there. But in 1 John, we discover a simple truth. He says that those who are, who are in Christ Jesus cannot continue in sin. Can't do it. Why? Because if you are in Christ, you have been made something brand new. You're something new. You're no longer that thing deserving of wrath. You're no longer that person who has earned the wage of death anymore. You've been given life and life eternal. That's what the scriptures tell us. You are something brand new. Here's my belief. Here's what I think Paul is telling us is he's identifying, hey, he, these things right here, these are not the way that God is operating in the world. Drunkenness, orgies, all this stuff, debauchery, lying, witchcraft, that is not the way of God, right? Because there's a place of ignorance that people can live in where you're not aware that something is actually sin. You don't know that the thing you're doing is actually leading you to death, that you're earning the wage of death by doing that thing. And so the scriptures reveal that to us. They go, oh, by the way, hey, lying is sin because you're not loving God and loving your neighbor if you're lying. And so then I have the wisdom now to go, oh, Jesus saved me from that. So I need to pursue honesty, right? What I think Paul is trying to let us know is this, is that if your life is marked by this, you're not in Jesus. Why? Because if you're in Christ, you cannot continue in sin. Now, let me put this into a little bit of a perspective for us. It doesn't mean that it's impossible for us to sin, 
But it does mean that if I've been made something new by Jesus, the way of sin is not the way of my life anymore. That I've been brought into something new. And because of my knowledge of what Jesus has done, there is a repenting of that old life and an embracing of the new. That Jesus, and by his grace, he gives me the ability to walk in. So when Paul goes through and he lists all this stuff, to me, I look at that and I go, he's letting you know whether or not you're in Jesus. Because he's going to continue and say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. He, he, he goes on in verse 24, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, right? That's been crucified. It's dead. It's dead. It's not who I am anymore, right? So what I think is happening is Paul is saying the acts of the flesh, another word we could use is we could say the, the fruit of the flesh. Why? It's the product of a sinful nature is sin. But when I came to Christ, I was given a new nature. My nature isn't inclined to sin anymore. In Jesus, my nature is now inclined towards the Spirit. So if I look at my life, this is, if I look at my life and I go, man, there's a whole lot of Acts 19 or uh, uh, verse 19 in my life right now. I think that's a moment for me to stop and go, am I in Jesus? Have I really believed? Has has my flesh been crucified and its sinful desires? Have I been brought in to the new life of Jesus? Because my life looks a lot like the fruit of sin. And then I can look and I can go, oh, but the fruit of the Spirit. What the new nature of Jesus in me produces is love and, and joy. And so then I can look at my life and I can go, is my life trending towards love? Is my life trending towards joy? Is my life trending towards peace? Is that what I see coming out of my life? Then it's an assurance for me to know that I am in Christ. Right? Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And this is part of eternal life, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. It's a way for us to identify where am I at? Am I in, in the world? Am I living? That's why he says, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. Why? Because you're not a part of it. You can't be and in, in be those things. Because the life of Jesus leads you out of that. Will you turn with me to 1 John? We're going to start in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 5. I'm just going to read a little bit to you out of here. Sin is, sin is what's messing up everyone's life. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus freely gives you a new life. He gives you a new life, and he doesn't just give you a new life, but the Bible says that he is the one who causes us to will and to act, to live according to his good purpose. That it's in him we live and move and have our being. It's the Holy Spirit working with us so that we can live in the fullness of the life that Jesus gave us. God has partnered with us to help us live this new life that he gives us, right? But what about sin? Because back in Galatians 5, 
He actually tells them, let's keep in, so since we are in the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, Paul, Paul actually does let us know, it's possible for me to turn from the life of Jesus and to go back to that which I've been rescued from. It is a possibility, but it's not possible if I just keep in step with God's Spirit. If I keep pursuing what Jesus rescued me from, and I pursue what he rescued me to, then it's impossible for me to fall back into what he did. But in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5, let's see what he says. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from, what's the words? All sin. Purifies us from all sin. What does that mean? That means that there's nothing that you once had in the world that you have to go back to, because Jesus purifies you from all of it. You might be here tonight, and you might be someone who says, I love Jesus, and I'm doing everything I can to live for Jesus, but there's this thing in my life that I just keep falling into. I just keep struggling with it. I want you to embrace the truth tonight that what Jesus Christ does in your life is purify you from all sin. There's not a single thing that you can be going through that's greater than the work that the blood of Jesus Christ does in your life. I just want you to know that. There's hope. There's hope. And there are moments in life when we get caught up in stuff. There's moments in life where the weakness of our flesh, right? Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There are moments in our life when the weakness of our flesh and maybe just the circumstances of life, we fall into something and then we, we feel like we get trapped or we get stuck. But we can't give up on the truth that Jesus purifies us from all of that. Which means that forgiveness is consistently available, but that God also has a, a way out for us. So John continues in verse 8, and he says, If we claim to be without sin, he's writing this to believers, by the way. He says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if you're like me, I go, but wait a minute. Uh, haven't you already said that uh, if we're in Jesus, we can't continue in sin? What are we talking about here, right? Like, this is kind of weird. There's this tension that we have to live in. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Going into chapter 2, he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but... If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want you to know that just because you're in Christ and you're walking out this newness of life, right? The Bible says that we work out our salvation. There's a process, pastor referenced it or talked about it, this sanctification, right? There's this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that's pulling us out of the world and leading us into this new life. And that's a process we're always going to be walking in. 
In fact, if I can be really honest with you, when he talks about if we claim to not have sin, like if, if I stop and reflect on my own life, the Bible tells me, this is just one example, the Bible tells me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. I don't think that I've ever loved my wife like, the Christ, like Christ loved the church a day in my life. That is a really high bar. You, you, so every day that I have not loved my wife in the same manner in which Christ loved the church and died for it, then I have fallen short of the mark. But the good news is that the blood of Jesus atones for all of my sins, all of my shortcomings. He is the righteous one, and his righteousness is now in me through faith. This is why it's not by my own effort. Because if I was relying on how good I was at loving God and loving people, I would never earn it. But if I stop and I go, everything I have, all of my life, all of the security that I have in Jesus is because of Jesus, then it's pretty easy for me to come to a place where I say, but if I sin, I can confess. And I will find forgiveness. And that Jesus will purify me from all unrighteousness. Sometimes, the step into freedom from whatever sin is holding you captive is the humility to confess that you can't beat it on your own. Because the life of God is not something you can earn. You can only be given it. And I believe that's true for all aspects of the life of God. So if there's an area in my life that doesn't look like what Scripture says it should look like, it probably means that I need to confess that I'm not able to do it. And that without God's intervention, without God's help, without the blood of Jesus purifying me. Because that purification process, that gets deep down into the core of who I am. It purifies me in my inner man. And it purifies that evil desire right out of me. Right? Did you know that scripture says that's where sin comes from? It doesn't, the, the devil made me do it doesn't work. Because the Bible tells us that sin comes from our own evil desires that are within us. But Jesus, the work of Jesus is to purify me of that. He's going to get deep down inside and he's going to go, that's not of me. And he'll purify it. So what John tells us as a church, he says, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And that if I will confess my sins, God will always be faithful to forgive, and to purify me from all unrighteousness. If you're struggling with something, the first step to victory is confession. It's confession. Why? Because confession opens the door for repentance, and repentance opens the door for forgiveness, and forgiveness opens the door for new life. But it starts with confession. And if you'll confess, if you'll own it, because confession is, is twofold to me. It's twofold. It's, the first part of it is, I'm going to take ownership for what I did. I'm going to admit that I did that thing. I'm not going to try to blow it off. I'm not going to try to pull an atom and be like, well, it was actually Eve's fault, right? I did the thing. I made the mistake. So it's ownership. And it's an acknowledging that what I did was actually sin. That it actually was sin. That it actually makes me someone who has broken God's law. And I need forgiveness because the wage of that is death. And I don't want to pursue that life anymore. I want to go after what Jesus offers me. And the only way to get what Jesus offers me is to receive it. I can't earn it. That's why Jesus told the disciples, he says, 
little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Because you can't earn any of it. It can only be given. So John tells us, confess and allow the work of God to do what it's supposed to do in your life. Let the blood of Jesus do what it does. Get inside of you and purify you. So here's what I encourage us to do. As a church, I would say this. Walk in humility at all times. Jesus in the Gospels, there's a situation where there's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector. And they're both giving their offering. And the Pharisee sees the tax collector. And the tax collector, or sorry, the Pharisee, first he goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. That I don't do all these terrible things. That I'm so much better than that. And the tax collector, Jesus says, doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He just looks down and beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, the tax collector, who just bowed his head in humility and beat his chest, asking for the mercy of God, went home justified. And the Pharisee, who was confident in his own good works, he was not justified before God. So the first thing I would encourage us to do when it comes to walking free from sin is to walk in humility to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because even on my best day, I'm going to miss the mark. So I need your grace, and I need your mercy. I need you to give me the gift of salvation. I need you to lead me, right? Second thing, if we're going to overcome sin in our lives, is we have to confess. we got to take ownership of it, and we have to acknowledge that what we were doing was actually wrong. And then God will come in and do his work. And the third thing I would encourage us all to do, because even on our best day, we're not going to meet the mark, right? Is to pray what David prayed in Psalms 139, and I'm going to finish with this. I think it's a good prayer. In Psalms 139, let me get there. In Psalms 139, verses 23 and 24, David prays, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good prayer because sometimes we can be ignorant of our own sin in our lives, right? And so we want to say, God, you know everything about me. You know my heart. You know my motives. You know my intentions. Search me and know me so that you can lead me in the way everlasting, which is what God desires for us, and it's what you were created for. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Father, I come before you in the name of Jesus, and I thank you that, Father, while we can earn death, you freely give us life. It's just who you are. You're a giver, and you don't require us to earn it. In fact, you prohibit us from being able to earn it. The only option we have is to receive your goodness and to receive your life, to acknowledge that we can't do this on our own. It is only by your grace that we could ever walk in the freedom that Jesus died to give us, that we could ever walk free of the penalty of our sin, that we could free ourselves from being deserving of your wrath. It's because of your great love and the riches of your mercy, God, that you just sent your son to die on a cross for us to show us that we could never pay the price, but you would willingly pay it for us. I pray, Father, that every one of us here God, that we wouldn't walk back to that which Jesus has rescued us from. 
And for anyone here, God, who might be struggling with sin, Father, that might feel powerless and weak in their fight against a sin, maybe a specific sin, Father, God, I pray that they would trust and believe that the blood of Jesus is greater than any sin in their life and that the blood of Jesus will do what your word says it will do, that it will purify them, Father, that it will cleanse them of all of those wicked desires that come from within them and that, Father, you are completely capable of leading them into holiness and righteousness because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. God, I thank you that the gospel is such good news. That, Father, you loved us enough that even while we were sinners, while we were enemies of you, while we were deserving of your wrath, your love overcame all of that and made a way for us to be brought back to where we always belonged. God, I pray for those who have been in a season of struggling with sin, that, Father, they would find freedom as they walk in humility, as they confess, and as they receive your forgiveness and your purifying power in their lives, God. I pray that tonight would be a new night for them as they leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Don't just run from it. Pursue what Jesus has for you. That's what I got for you. Don't run from sin. Pursue what Jesus has. That's the way to go. All right, church, we love you. We'll see you. Sunday morning, be blessed.